The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH on and your host, and today's show is an emergency broadcast entitled The Real Story of the Worst Riots in South Africa that are happening as we speak. They're saying that it's all died down now, but that is not actually the case. There are still pockets of it going on. So let me bring on my co-hosts, Dr. Peter Hammond and Malifka Scott. Firstly, Peter, are you with me? I am. Thank you very much, Andrew, and thank you for being willing to be flexible in this, because this is really breaking and current news, and as you know, the lamestream media is missing the main story. Yes, indeed, and the, the other thing is, is I always say, not just to Peter, but to all my regular monthly and uh, weekly co-hosts, that uh, if they ever have anything important, then let me know and I'll get it out on a show. And this is an occasion where it's happened. Unfortunately, Peter was not scheduled for this Thursday, but even if he had been, I'd have brought him on today because this uh, is very important. But he will be back next week uh, for as long as he wishes to come back every Thursday. Um, so that being said, let's bring up Maleficus. Maleficus, are you with me? Good morning, old boy. Uh, nice to be back. And um, yeah, what a privilege it is to be on at the same time as... Uh, uh, Peter Hammond here. So I, I've been listening to your yours and his shows a lot over the last, um, crikey, I can't remember how far back, a long way back. So yes, it, it's it's a privilege to be here this morning with both of you and actually have uh, uh, a good view or, or get a good view of, of what's going on um, from someone with their feet on the ground over there. So um, yeah, morning chaps. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Maleficus. And uh, as Maleficus just said, you know, Peter is a great authority on so many subjects, but on this particular one, he's basically feet on the ground. He's our roving reporter over there. He's seeing what's going on. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off with the horrendous situation in South Africa today? Please go ahead. Well, uh, just the latest news right now up to this moment, uh, there's a cold storage facility mega warehouse in Natal, very close to Durban, which is one of the biggest uh, port facilities in the continent. And this uh, cold storage facility is on fire at this moment in Hammersdale. And the fire brigade responded as they would, you would expect, with all fire engines possible, because this is a massive, colossal warehouse facility, uh, which is cold storage, you know, for, for meat products and so on being uh, distributed from there. 
And uh, when they arrived there, they were attacked by vast amounts of looters who started throwing rocks and petrol bombs at them. And uh, the police fled. And when the police fled, the fire brigade had to withdraw without putting out the fire. So that's going on right now. So if anyone's saying, oh, you know, uh, everything's died down, well, I've got lots of friends in Quazulu Natal, and they're telling me, you've got to be kidding. Uh, the police aren't even on the ground, and the fire brigade's not even able to respond uh, to uh, this incident. So what's going on right now is it's being described as the worst riots in the history of South Africa. And that's saying something. We've had some pretty bad riots. It's been called the most destructive riots in the history of South Africa, which I don't think there's any doubt about it. So just to give you some some ideas or some statistics, uh, just the uh, Durban municipality, which are now calling the Ethiquini municipality, uh, but you know everyone knows where Durban is. Nobody's ever heard of Ethiquini before, but that's what they're trying to call it now. According to that municipality, that's one city, 15 billion rand worth of damage. That's that's almost a billion pounds. And uh, they said 129,000 jobs have been wiped out. 40,000 businesses have been impacted, most of which will never recover. Now, that, that's just speaking about Durban. We're not talking about Kateng, the rest of KwaZulu-Natal. The reports are coming in uh, bits and uh uh, one report I've just gotten right now is 50 schools in KwaZulu-Natal have been torched, well, looted first and then torched, everything of value taken out of it. So and I don't know what schools have got to do with this, but they've gone up in flames. 161 liquor outlets have been looted. Nothing says protest more than looting liquor stores, I guess. Eight factories have been destroyed, 11 warehouses, 161 shopping malls, um, and 40,000 businesses, and that's just in the KwaZulu-Natal. No, that's just in the Durban area. The Sullivan Pharmacy Council says 90 of their pharmacies have been looted and destroyed beyond recovery, which led to the closing of all pharmacies in the whole province of KwaZulu-Natal, which used to be the province of Natal and the Kingdom of Zuland, but they combined it. Entire fridges of insulin and medicine stolen from these pharmacies. And not only have all the shelves been looted, but even the pharmacy computers with entire patient record databases lost as a result. So now tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of patients will need to make new appointments with their doctors to have new prescriptions issued for their chronic medication requirements because they can't be issued otherwise. 113 cell phone towers were destroyed. Uh, you know, this begins to sound, considering that a lot of the lamestream media is calling this unrest and protests, you kind of wonder, well, what does a war sound like? What does insurrection and economic sabotage and domestic terrorism sound like? Because to call us unrest, you know, if I've got an upset stomach, that's maybe an unrest. And a protest, well, we do protests for pro-life, but nobody gets hurt, nothing gets damaged, and we don't even leave litter. Uh, a protest is peaceful by definition. A violent action is by definition a riot. So uh, as one group, the South African Property Owners Association, they said just their shopping mall retail outlets that are members have lost over 10 billion rands worth of damage in last week. And the Sugarcane uh, Growers Association says they've lost 353,000 tons of sugarcane burnt in arson, which is over 211 million rand in lost revenue in the middle of harvesting season, causing irrecoverable losses to cane growers and workers, and you can imagine 
The cost of anything that includes sugar is going to go up as a result. In fact, the cost of everything is going to go up because Business Unity South Africa said the cost, the economic damage caused by this anarchy and chaos, which some are calling an insurrection uh, and terrorism and so on, he says just one of the institutions that handles insurance, SASRIA, uh, they have got claims already of 12 billion in claims. And uh, this will lead to massive shutdowns, increased unemployment, because they just don't have the resources to even uh, pay out not even 8% of the claims. And obviously, the claims have only just begun. So this has been more destructive than a war. In fact, you know, if we'd had a thousand bomber raid come over from the RAF uh, bombing the uh, city of Durban, uh, like they did in the Second World War, it, it wouldn't have dam damaged the economy as much as this has. The looting and destruction, uh, you can imagine, we're talking about 200 shopping malls at least, tens of thousands of businesses, national highways blocked. Uh, in fact, as some have said, this doesn't look like uh, it was spontaneous or sporadic at all. It looks extremely well organized, extremely well planned, because they basically throttled the lifeline of the country, uh, which is our National Road 2 and National Road 3. Absolutely uh, nothing moving, burned out all of vehicles, the trucks and so on. Uh, so pentechnicans burning all over the place. The death toll right now is over 200 and it's rising all the time. Most of whom died in stampedes of looting. So many of these would have been looters stampeding one another into the ground. Uh, the police are investigating a whole lot of cases of murder as well. Um, and who knows what else has been going on here. But that's just from the beginning. You can imagine this has been uh, sustained violence that started just over a week ago. And the fires are still burning and the looting has not yet ended. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Um, Maleficus, have you got any questions for Peter at this stage? Well, I mean, it's it's quite obvious to me um, that you know the, the the dictionary definition of terrorism is you know violence for political gain, and uh, obviously the whole idea that Jacob Zuma has been imprisoned and that we're we're led to believe by the mainstream media over here that um, that's the reason for these protests inverted commas. Well, as you say, you've you've held protests. It doesn't uh, it doesn't have to. You don't have to incite violence or looting uh, in order to maintain a protest. This is, you know, this is terrorism. This is violence for political gain. Um, and as you as you say, it seems very very well organised as well. It's the infrastructure of the entire country, really, or or for large parts of the country is being attacked. Um, I've also uh, heard on the mainstream media over here that. The police are only allowed to fire rubber bullets um, and that the military have been deployed, but they're not allowed to use live rounds, even though they have them. Is that is that yes. the case? That is correct. But it's much worse than that, because uh, the police have been given so few rubber bullets. And in many cases, they have absolutely no tear gas available. And they've been asking for it for a long time that the situation was so bad that this may sound bizarre to you. Uh, but the only thing that saved a whole lot of shopping malls from going up in flames was private citizens who mobilized to protect it, not the police and army. And, and uh, there's some lies being given on the media right now that the South African army and police have 
have restored order. That's not true. Uh, they were nowhere to be seen during the worst of the violence. And it was private citizens with private firearms who protected many malls from going up in smoke, protected entire suburbs by uh, blockading and stopping. And in many cases, as they were setting up their uh, citizens' na neighborhood watch uh, blockades, roadblocks, and so on, and they were searching every vehicle going in and out. And uh, of course, if a person didn't have uh, evidence that they lived in the neighborhood, they weren't allowed in. And people in on the way out, they searched vehicles. They found p police and police vehicles, policemen in uniforms and private vehicles stacked to the gunnels with looted material, looted bl blatantly. People wearing um, stolen goods that still have the uh, sort of uh, stubs in them from not only the price tags, but the metal detector ones that would make a sound if you try to go out with shoplifted material. Um, they, were, they were literally still had those um, uh, clips still on them, which of course get removed at the till after you've paid for the item. And policemen and soldiers are captured by private citizens taking part in the looting. What's uh, also extraordinary is that there were civil police stations that got attacked and private citizens came to protect them and the police ran out of ammunition and needed to be bailed out by private citizens. So private citizens were supplying the police with ammunition, which the police didn't have. And uh, understand this, which may sound uh, like this is something from uh, some comedy show, but the police were having to approach sports groups and so on to provide them with ammunition for their shotguns, uh, which, by the way, the police commissioner is trying to ban that private citizens even have access to these weapons. And so private citizens saved the day and were actually doing reloads and providing weapons and improvised rubber bullets for the police, which the police um, high command were not providing them. So the situation is so bad. There were cases where the entire community was trying to storm the police station and rip the police to pieces and burn the station down, where the private citizens saved the police, the private citizens armed the police, and the private citizens provided ammunition for the police, which somehow head office didn't provide. So it's much, much worse than what the media is giving. Um, it, it, if anyone's telling you that the police and army have at last restored order, uh, well, that's a blatant lie. It's the private citizens who are armed who've restored order, and the police and army are moving into areas where the order was restored by private citizens. That's the facts. My goodness. I mean, you you couldn't write this stuff. It, it, it's, no. it's unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Uh, you know, thank goodness for you know private citizens actually coming forward and um, stepping up to the plate. You know. Yes, indeed. Now it, it's extraordinary, and right now we've got before Parliament a bill being sponsored by the Commissioner of Police to uh, take out self-defence as a valid reason for owning a firearm. Now at the moment we can own firearms validly, and uh, of course there's lots of hoops and jumps you've got to go through and firearm competency certificates and so on. In fact, it's kind of bizarre because, um, you know, I served in the South African Infantry and I've got uh, marksman's medals and all that sort of thing. And I've got somebody um, coming to assess my firearm um, uh, competency, which I've passed many a time, but yeah, I've got to renew my license every five years and so on. And so he comes along and um, uh, he's going through and he, he looks at my pump action shotgun and he says to me, is this an automatic? I said, no, it's a pump action shotgun. So he said, so is that a manual or an automatic? 
I said to the firearm control officer, no, it's, it's, it's manual, it's a pump action. So it's manual again. Yes, that's, that's manual. He gets to the bolt action rifle. Is this manual or automatic? It's a bolt action rifle. <laughs> yes, is that manual or automatic? No, it's manual. Okay, he ticks that box. This is the man checking my competency. <laughs> and uh, it's 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 beyond a joke. I, you know, I I don't think that uh, <clears throat> the the comedians could make this stuff up. But uh, in this situation, uh, we've got our firearms. It's very hard. But there's still something like 1.6 million legal firearm owners in South Africa. Uh, there's probably 18 million Ill- illegal firearm owners. Um, and by the way, they tell us to hand in our firearms to the police. And yet the police and the army lose the firearms at a rate of hundreds of thousands a year. And they and these firearms turn up in crime. So those people in South Africa have been um, uh, propagandized into handing over their firearms for various reasons at different times and have received a certificate of their rifle or pistol or whatever was was destroyed. They've got a certificate of destruction. Later, they get a criminal investigation bureau turning up in their doorstep that their firearm was used in a um, cash and transit uh, armed robbery, um, hitting an armored car or whatever. And uh, he produces the certificate. This firearm's been destroyed. It's a police um, certificate. And sure enough, according to the police, the same firearm that's been captured uh, being used in uh, cash and transit robbery or bank robberies and so on uh, was handed in and was destroyed and now they've got a problem. I mean, how does this happen? Well, obviously, there's corruption, the police, and they're selling these firearms to the criminals if they're not actually the criminals themselves. So uh, this is the scenario right now. What you've got in this country, bear in mind, is the inevitable result of British Foreign Office and U.S. State Department and EU and UN policy, which was to betray the well-run uh, pro-Western South African government into the hands of the African National Congress terrorist movement, the Marxist, Leninist, revolutionary terrorists of Nelson Mandela and uh, Oliver Tambo and so on. And they um, took a whole lot of terrorists and put them in police and army uniforms. And I said at the time, putting a bunch of criminals and terrorists and Marxists in police uniforms is not going to make them honest. And um, certainly has made them efficient either, as we've seen now. So uh, back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And um, a quick question that I've got is, do the um, the people, the, the, the citizens themselves that have actually stood up to, to protect businesses and even police stations against the looting, what's the makeup of them? Have we got some whites, some blacks, or are they all are they Afrikaners, are they Boers? What's the sort of makeup there? Uh, yes. Well, it's across the board. Most were whites. The second largest group would have been Indians. There's a very large Indian community in KwaZulu-Natal and especially in Durban that dates back to the 1860s. Uh, the British found that the uh, Africans, the Zulus, were not interested in sugarcane uh, farming. So they brought in a whole lot of people from India, from the British Raj. And uh, most of them decided to stay. You might recall that uh, Gandhi was at one time a resident in uh, the Natal when it was under the British. And uh, in fact, he took sides on the Anglo-Boer War on the British side, uh, interestingly. Uh, but still, um, so we've got a lot of Indians who are very successful business. In fact, we hear that the Indians in South Africa, which are mostly in Natal, uh, are some of the highest standard of living Indians in the world. And uh, they have uniformly stood firm. They've protected their communities like Phoenix, one of the biggest suburbs. Um, 
uh, very effectively. And so a lot of the what the state's calling vigilantism, uh, which is nothing other than community protection, was done by the Indians. So the Indians and the whites have together been probably the most active, but they've also been some black businessmen who would be denigrated as capitalists by their own communities, uh, who've also been standing up and protecting their businesses and, and helping to protect the suburbs, especially Soweto. One of the shopping malls in Soweto went up in flames. Another one was protected by armed uh, businessmen and community people who protected that entire mall effectively with no police in sight. So um, I, I would say this has been overwhelmingly uh, the the uh, the whites, uh, Afrikaans being the most predominant of them, I'm afraid the English in South Africa tend to be more liberal, more likely to be pacifist or not as likely to have firearms. Uh, I would be an exception, but that's because I'm Rhodesian. And, uh, so, you know, we're all armed. Um, the Afrikaans people and the Rhodesians are definitely armed. And you can be sure the Indians are armed, and they know. And so... Right now, we've got the government complaining about citizens taking the law into their own hands. Well, what else are you meant to do when you're on your own? And didn't people see this in America during the BLM rights last year that uh, suddenly the police, who you thought your taxpayer money was guaranteeing their protection, suddenly when you really need them, they're not there. And you're totally left to your own devices. I mean, that's the way we found it. Uh, back to you. Thank you, Peter. And um, something that Maleficus said, you know, the whole thing seems engineered. I was very curious to see why they've thrown this Jacob Zuma under the bus because uh, it's my understanding and my belief, and uh, please uh, fill in the blanks here, that uh, all these uh, South African presidents, even going back to F.W. de Klerk, were pretty much corrupt. So why did they decide to uh, put this guy in jail? What can you tell us about previous uh, African presidents and your thoughts as to why they jailed Jacob Zuma? Yes, well, you know, um, I would say that Jacob Zuma is the least worst of the Marxist presidents we've had under the ANC, I would have said that the worst one we've had uh, up till now has been Thabo Mbeki, who was quite quiet, but he was a very doctrinaire Marxist. And Thabo Mbeki, interestingly enough, uh, brought 156 charges of corruption and violence and even rape and so on against Zuma when he is his vice president. Um, interestingly enough, Zuma showing what an incredibly um, versatile survivor he is, he managed to oust President Thabo Mbeki at the next national um, executive conference of the ANC and uh, uh, kicked out in, in midterm the, the president of the country and uh, became the president, managed to fire the uh, national uh, prosecuting attorney, <laughs> the effective attorney general, um, and brought in a new one who scrapped all the charges against him and he continued for another two terms. Uh, Jacob Zuma, Interestingly enough, bad as he was, and of course he is corrupt, but then so were all the others, as you say. Uh, but under him, there was no talk of expropriating farms. In fact, he said the Afrikaners were the first true Africans because no one in Africa called themselves an African before the, the white Afrikaners did. They the first identified themselves as Africans, which is what Afrikaner means. He said when we were thinking of ourselves only as Zulus or Kosa, uh, they were thinking of themselves as Africans. And he appointed a white man, a fine Christian man that I know, uh, Peter Mulder, as Minister of Agriculture. And uh, people were criticizing him for that. And he said, well, it's the backbone of the country. And when they tried expropriation out compensation, he scorned it and he chased it out. He wasn't interested. Now, basically what happened was 
um, uh, Zuma was very much more tribal, much more Zulu and things like that. And I think because he didn't want to go the expropriation out compensation way, and he actually tolerated opposition. He would laugh at, at opposition, whereas Tabu Mbeki would have the Inquisition mobilized. He had literally an Inquisition who would scour the papers, and if he found any criticism, they'd go after them with everything. Uh, audits from the Revenue Service, destruction, getting the person fired from their job or whatever, and internal criticism within the ANC was definitely not tolerate that people would lose their seat in parliament, whatever it was. So Tabu Mbeki was the most doctrinaire Marxist of all. And under Tabu Mbeki, they tried to close all the Christian radio stations, all the Christian schools, um, get rid of all the firearms out of the hands of any uh, private citizen. We were marching to parliament and protesting Tabu Mbeki's reign um, the whole time. So when he was gotten rid of, we just breathed a collective sigh of relief. And to be honest, uh, Jacob Zuma, corrupt though he was, uh, he was a relief because we didn't get a doctrinaire Marxist uh, uh, agenda that was trying to destroy the country under him. And the economy actually grew. Uh, whereas since Ramaphosa's come to power, the economy has been in deficit in a minus every single year. And Ramaphosa speaks well and he gives has a good impression, uh, but his policies have been catastrophic. And from his first day in office, his very first speech, Ramaphosa said, expropriation of compensation of white farms. We can take farms to the whites and give them to our people. And it got the longest, loudest cheering, standing ovation, applause in the house. And since uh, Ramaphosa came to power, uh, they, we can see our countries being sold to the Chinese and he's in the pay of the Chinese and he's heavily following the Chinese agenda because the Chinese want to take South Africa's farms away from the farmers and away from agriculture to strip mine them because they're convinced that there's more valuable minerals under the ground in these farming areas. Now, of course, the farmers right now are feeding middle, tens of millions of people and they'll have to starve, but hey, that's a small price for China to get the minerals they want. They did the same thing in Zimbabwe, where they got rid of over 5,600 privately owned white commercial farms. But in the process, they found Meringue Diamond Field, which um, is one of the largest diamond producing fields in the world right now, almost all of which goes to, to China. And so, and nothing benefits the people of Zimbabwe. And so we, what we see is the reason why Zoom is in jail is I don't think he advanced the Marxist agenda fast enough. I think he actually stumbled and prevented the Marxist agenda going ahead. He frustrated the plans of the Chinese. He didn't seem to be as responsive to the Chinese. Uh, he was looking after his people, meaning the Zulu people, um, and uh, he was basically having a good time as a corrupt uh, acting dictator of the country in that sort of mindset. But he wasn't a doctrinaire Marxist like Mandela, Mbeki, Ramaphosa, uh, and that's why I think they're after him. It's not that he's the only one who's stolen. The whole bunch of them have. How did Cyril Ramaphosa, who's never been a businessman, become a multi-billionaire? He became a multi-billionaire because he was the chairman of the ANC's negotiating team, and he convinced all the big companies in this country to give a whole lot of free uh, uh, <clears throat> shares in the companies for black economic empowerment, and he just kept most of them himself. And so he became an overnight billionaire without having invested anything, without having done any actual business work. So he called himself a businessman and a billionaire now. But unlike Donald Trump, he didn't actually earn it himself. He got it through negotiation, through, um, <laughs> I suppose, the art of the deal, um, by demanding a whole lot of free shares. So uh, I don't know what people think about that, but that seems more corrupt than even what Zoom has done. And yet 
what we're seeing right now is a civil war in the ANC. Because remember, the ANC had a civil war between the Mbeki bunch and the Zuma group, and Zuma won and got rid of Mbeki, which was actually good for our country because Mbeki was far more dangerous. And Zuma had no problem tolerating Christian schools, Christian radio stations, opposition, criticism. You know, he, he just was having a good time and uh, we were able to get on with our lives mostly. Whereas Ramaphosa has been pushing this expropriation of farmlands uh, without compensation, playing the race card, blaming the whites. And uh, he is fitting directly into the Chinese Communist Party's agenda. So I think that's what you're seeing right now. This is effectively a civil war amongst the ANC. Uh, you could um, compare this to some degree between the Trotskyites and the Stalinist uh, war uh, in uh, Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution, after the death of Lenin, which could be sort of analogous to our Mandela. And uh, then you had Trotsky and Stalin falling out over who's going to control the Soviet Union and the party. And this is it. It's a battle for the soul of the ANC. And uh, Zuma is an inconvenient obstacle. But what uh, bothers these people is that his uh, supporters are still large. Now, I'm not convinced yet whether it's Zuma supporters who are behind all of this chaos, although they are being blamed. But that seems awfully convenient for the government because they're claiming that we've just survived a, a planned insurrection. I would think that we should look at the possibility that this was planned by the government itself to discredit Zuma and to also create the kind of chaos necessary to justify a uh, state of emergency where they could even more crush our personal freedoms and let the communist agenda, the globalist agenda advance. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, before I hand over to Maleficus for some questions, I remember that story that um, with the farms in Rhodesia becoming Zimbabwe, that they were digging up all the irrigation pipes and selling them for scrap rather than running them as farms because they wanted to make a quick buck. And I understand that uh, Rhodesia used to be known as the breadbasket of Africa, and that is no longer the case. But uh, final question uh, that I have at the moment before I hand back to Maleficus is... Is there any way that people can uh, help uh, sort of donate, things like that? Because obviously we're very worried about, you know, the decent people of South Africa suffering uh, with what could be a complete breakdown of the supply chain and things like that. We really want to make sure that people aren't going to be starving. Is there anything that, that you're able to do, Any um, that, that, that people can maybe send something to, to your ministry and say that it's specifically for um, the... the the support of these people who have suffered as a result of the riots. So back to you. Oh, yes. No, certainly. I mean, uh, Frontline Fellowship is on the ground. We are doing everything we can. We're in touch with a lot of good groups. I mean, one of the very good groups that's helping, especially the farmers and the people who've been hurt by the BBBEE, that's broad-based Black Economic Empowerment, Affirmative Action, Racial Quotas, and so on, is Afroforum. Afroforum does excellent work. They're good friends of ours. Frontline Fellowship's on the on the ground, helping wherever we can, the Christians, the churches that are making a stand. So frontline mission is the website or the emails, mission at frontline.org.za. That's if a person wants to um, email us, mission at frontline.org.za is the way Americans would pronounce it. And uh, uh, aside from Frontline Fellowship, uh, we'd recommend Afroforum. Thank you, Peter. And uh, folks, if you don't have the wherewithal to do so, then please keep the 
decent people of South Africa in your prayers at this time. We know that prayer does work. So Maleficus, any uh, other questions you'd like to pose to Peter? Back to you. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting. Uh, you know, you've covered an awful lot of ground, Peter. In, in so I've been sort of um, making mental as well as physical notes. Um, interesting that you related some of this to, or, or or likened some of this to the BLM riots that we saw in America. Um, also, um, you know, the fact that Zuma was corrupt. I think, you know, with the words, it's the same with uh, with uh, Saddam Hussein being corrupt. It was with our consent at the time. So it's quite obvious, you know, politicians are corrupt. But I think you're right. The Zuma supporters, judging by the mainstream narrative I'm seeing over here in the UK, uh, the Zuma supporters are being used as a scapegoat. Um, and it, it's too convenient. This whole thing, it seems very well orchestrated. It's far too convenient for it all to have just happened all by itself. Um, you know, not with, you know, uh, and, you know, thank goodness for all the, the sort of locals and, and all the, the people who had the wherewithal to do so, you know, stepping forward and stepping up to the plate and, and protecting local businesses as best they could and, and, and protecting the police. Um, you know, I, I think the fact that it, it was more likely um, plan a, a sort of a government plan to have all this push forward in the way that it has, I think you're at, you think you've hit the nail on the head. Absolutely there. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's it, isn't it funny that this is this will also push forward into the whole you know, the whole COVID pandemic thing. And uh, this is all the uh, worldwide. We know that the whole COVID pandemic is a power grab. It's a massive power grab. Mm. And mm. the same with the BLM riots. You know, um, you had, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the lady who uh, who's the economist, but she was saying, you know, if you'd have wanted to uh, devalue real estate um, in certain areas of, of, you know, prominent cities in America, you know, it, uh, it was the BLM riots were, were placed, positioned perfectly to devalue certain um, you know, wealthy sections of real estate so that they, you know, they'd be smashed up and, and broken up and could be bought at pence, pence on the pound or cents on the dollar um, after the riots occurred. So, um, yeah, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there brilliantly and succinctly as well. Yes, I think the question one always has to ask is who benefits? And the timing yeah, is just extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary timing. And it dovetails with the globalists' uh, control plans. And there's been a lot of opposition to the government's uh, different plans, including uh, the land expropriation. I mean, a lot of people realize you take over the farms, people are going to starve, which is exactly what's happened in Zimbabwe. This isn't rocket science. <laughs> We've seen this before. We know exactly where this is going. And yet... Um, because of all the opposition, suddenly they have this, oh, you know, there's all the faults of Zuma's crowd. Therefore, you've got to give the crowd that's been destroying our country and crushing us under this scandemic uh, lockdown lunacy, masquerade nonsense. And uh, suddenly they've got a new lease of life because we've got to stand together. There's been an insurrection, an attempt to depose the government from power. And let's all stand behind the government as they restore order. Uh, that's the propaganda narrative. It just doesn't fit with the facts yeah yeah completely and well yeah, it's the same tactic over and over again throughout history isn't it you know a problem reaction solution 
Yes. Oh, Hegelian dialectic thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And so uh, the Marxists have been past masters for ages. They create the problem so that they can offer the solution which produces the result that they wanted all along, which in this case is less freedom for you and more power for the politician. Um, you know, um, in Africa, we have a big problem with ticks. Ticks are blood-sucking parasites. And uh, uh, we would get these ticks. This is just a normal thing every day. You'd have to moment you come back from the bush or whatever, you've got to search all over and find these blood-sucking parasites that are uh, attaching onto your body and burrowing in. And um, so I explained to people in Africa that polytics uh, stands, it's made up of two words, poly, many, and ticks, blood-sucking parasites. Polytics, many blood-sucking parasites. <laughs> yeah, I think that hits the nail on the head also. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but it, doesn't it doesn't what you said highlight the case that actually it's the people, um, you know, it's not the governments of the world that um, should be leading. It's the people, you know, in, in mind of the fact that you, you had these um, civilian bystanders chipping in and helping. And this is what we need on a worldwide basis. Now, people need to start seeing through all the nonsense, all the rhetoric that is being pushed in front of them. Um, you know, I think the toe in the water last year with all this um, covid stuff was the whole uh, supposed toilet roll shortage that went viral worldwide. And it was a it was a toe in the water by the powers who would like to be, uh, uh, as my granddad called them, wishful thinkers um, to see if the public were susceptible enough to it. And uh, sure enough, everyone went mad going out and buying toilet roll and they saw that the time was right to bring in this this covid nonsense that you know obviously mm. had already been pre-planned before um but with with the riots over there i mean it's the the devastation the, the obvious devastation is it's it's gutting it's gutting and thank goodness for the local communities that did stand with each other and this is our I, this is something that i've said to andy a lot it, it's you know local community is where you know where we need to be looking for our futures yes indeed in fact um what we're seeing is a failed state and the state is uh, this this was explained all the way along with the social contracts and lex rex and in defense of liberty against tyrants that uh, government has a contract with the civilians so uh, they protect us and we owe allegiance to them and give them taxes and so on but if they fail to protect their citizens uh, then the contract is null and void. And uh, uh, what was also said in, uh, in Defence of Liberty Against Tyrants and Lex Rex by uh, Samuel Rutherford, that uh, just off the time of the Reformation, that as we owe allegiance to our king, our king owes allegiance to the king of kings. And if our king is in rebellion to the king of kings, then we must not put ourselves on the side of the rebel against God. We must obey God rather than man. And so the prevailing a thought pattern before the Reformation was Rex Lex, Rex King, Lex Law, Rex Lex, the king is the law, the king's word is law. But the reformers inverted that to Lex Rex, the law is king, the king is under the law. And we need to get back to this basic Reformation principle that the, that the government is under the law and uh, the government is duty bound to provide protection for its population. If it cannot protect the population, as they plainly failed to do in the BLM rights in America or here in South Africa with these rights, then uh, then the local citizens are forced to step up the plate. And I've been amazed at the resilience of South Africans. And well, I've lived in, in Africa all my life, Rhodesia or South Africa. And I must say that 
uh, we've had to be resilient and resourceful to operate under this bewildering array of BBBE, affirmative action race quota regulations, with regular scheduled power failures, with interruption of plumbing service, with erratic, irrational lockdown lunacy regulations that stifles uh, businesses and strangles industries. And we've we've had to become more resilient. And as a result, we know our neighbors and we are well networked with our neighbors and communities work together and often we're on a bartering system and we cooperate. And uh, you, you would be amazed how resilient we are in South Africa. We've almost all had to get boreholes and uh, massive water containers to harvest the water from our uh, roofs because um, the government plumbing services are so erratic and unreliable and we've got our own water purification systems at home. You know, Africa, bring your own infrastructure. And we've had to be dependent for ourselves for self-defense and all that sort of thing. And this is why secession movements like Cape Exit are advancing and growing so much. And talk of secession of KwaZulu-Natal and uh, the Cape of Good Hope to separate from this failed state of South Africa, you know, to secede from chaos, uh, to, to quote uh, Moist Chambay, when um, they seceded Katanga from the Congo, when the Congo was under that hideous um, uh, Marxist regime and the entire Congo was going into chaos. And Katanga seceded because they said we're seceding from chaos. And the United Nations invaded Katanga and bombed Katanga to force Katanga to rejoin communist chaos of the Congo. And so uh, there's a whole lot of us over here who are saying, look, central government's failed. And that's why we are building community watches and community uh, neighborhood uh, programs. And our people have got so resilient, we don't depend on our central government at all for almost anything. Uh, we've become more and more self-sufficient. And I, I think that's what we've got to do. And uh, all these uh, churches that have been intimidated into thinking they're non-essential, that's what the government's called us, non-essential. To this day in South Africa, the uh, state is saying no religious gatherings are allowed at all. Now, casinos are fine. Casinos are uh, uh, essential. Abortion clinics are fine. They've operated throughout the, all five lockdown levels of the uh, lockdown lunacy of COVID uh, scam. And uh, uh, massive shops, the biggest shops, the the huge uh, Costco type things, macro and so on, they're open. That's, that's fine. You can have huge groups gathering there, but the small shops were closed and the small farmer was put out of business. And you could just see this as big business and big government and big tech and big pharma all in bed with one another. And they're all working to crush the little man and the middle man and the, the, the family business. And uh, we've got to stop supporting the big businesses and start supporting the cottage industries and the family businesses and the folks down the street that we know, and uh, especially fellow Christians, if at all possible. Uh, we've gone further than that in the Cape. We uh, try to give our business to those who support Cape independence. Uh, basically, we've been forced to think a lot more about what we're doing to strengthen our friends and allies and not to continually put our money into the big tech, big government, big pharma, and uh, big government, all of which are working together to crush us. And this is a matter of survival. And the churches in particular need to wake up and open up and step out. And we, we need to speak up and to fight the good fight of faith. It's absolutely outrageous that so many churches have remained closed for most of the last 15, 16 months. And uh, uh, so basically, we're having to follow the example of the persecuted church where we continue to meet. If we're not allowed to meet in a church, we've got to meet in home fellowships. But the church has to be involved. 
chaos ensues when a church accepts a designation of non-essential and stops being salt and light in the community and stops making disciples nations and being a positive influence. And so I think the challenge to all of us is, are you going to be part of the solution or part of the problem? Yes. I think you're right. I'll just jump in here quickly because uh, just to sort of, you both touched on this, but uh, uh, comparing these rights to BLM. Well, I was listening to another broadcast, um, The Absolute State of Britain, which I tune into each week. Um, and uh, they've been talking to someone in South Africa. And it's my understanding from what they'd said to who they'd spoken to, that very similar to the BLM riots, that these people were actually being bussed in. Uh, the George Soros style. Uh, did you witness any of, uh, uh, did you come across any of that sort of information, Peter? We're getting the reports and it's absolutely extraordinary. Yes. I mean, just take, for example, the strategicness of the action. Just one of the warehouses destroyed, one of the many warehouses destroyed was Food Forward SA. Now, this is a food supply agency that provides 4 million meals a month for the poor, for the poorest poor, through 1,200 NGOs. And so, the entire warehouse was ransacked and vandalized, which left them with no stock, forced its closure, and left, meant that literally 1,200 NGOs without the food meals that they were going to be delivering to the poorest of the poor. Now, just think of the strategicness of this orchestrate plan of sabotage. And yes, the reports were that the looters and rioters were bust into these events because most of these warehouses are not on the main roads. They, you know, they're tucked away in some industrial somewhere. And uh, it's not that people just went to what they could see close to the neighborhoods. They were going to strategic hubs. And so the pharmaceutical warehouses, the places where they supplied key things, those were the places being targeted. This has to be to create the kind of chaos that the communists want. You're aware of the fact that Vladimir Lenin spoke of the need for constructive chaos. That's his term. He said, never underestimate the value of constructive chaos to advance communist agendas. And so the communists orchestrate chaos, uh, like the George Soros bussing in uh, Antifa or BLM mobs. And so it is in South Africa. Where did these people come from? Who paid for the buses? How come they all turned up at the right time and turning up with the right things? We're talking about with crowbars and with everything needed to pry open the burglar bars, security gates. Remember, in South Africa, most of our businesses and warehouses have very significant um, protections. They're not like America. Everything's just made of glass. Uh, they, uh, these places were well protected, and they turned up with the crowbars and what have you, all looking very new, and they had the equipment needed to break down the security systems and get in. And uh, they arrived in sufficient numbers at the right places, but it all happened spontaneously and sporadically, according to the news media. Yeah, that, that rings... Sorry, sorry. Oh, no, uh, go ahead, Malifka. You go ahead. No, uh, that that rings very true to the BLM riots. I mean, there were reports of entire pallets of bricks being left on street corners with no building work going on um, in yeah. America. And you know, strategically, as I said, I, ca I can't remember the name of the economist. The, the, the name will probably come to me after, uh, just as soon as we stop recording, I expect. But um, you know, she was saying <laughs> it was so strategic that. You know, if, if you'd have wanted to devalue a certain amount of real estate or, or certain areas of real estate, you couldn't have you know, planned these BLM riots better. And we all know yes. that all the funding for BLM didn't go to any black causes at all. Mm. You know? um, so, uh, you know, it's interesting you're saying about the um, the charity, um, the uh, was it Food Forward SA? 
Yes, that's um, right. Yeah. The central, I mean, how does that decentral place? How does that how does that support any cause? All that does is that goes along the lines of exactly what we mentioned before, and that hits the poorest the hardest. You know, um, and it, as as we said, it's it's all about crushing the small man, the what the Americans would call the mum and pop stores. You know, the the the, the greengrocer at the end of the street or or whatever. Um, you know. Uh, going back to what you said earlier as well about pharmacies were hit, you know, so the, and 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 computers were stolen with the entire medical records of of the people who would visit those pharmacies. So this is this is uh, you know a, a multiple you know this is an attack on so many different levels, um, and it, it, you can't think of it as anything other than orchestrated, you know, yeah. and the fact that, that you know they're, they're turning up. Tool, essentially tooled up with crowbars and I've I've been to South Africa when I, uh, many many years ago when I was 14 my aunt and uncle lived over there just outside Grahamstown and uh, I remember the police wandering around with you know side arms and and uh, there were certain areas that you know we hired a car and we, we did the garden route we went from uh, Port Alfred all the way down to Cape Town and uh, it was absolutely stunning, by the way. I have to say, you live in an absolutely beautiful country, um, but you know there were certain places that you 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 wouldn't dare stop the car. So uh, mm -hmm. and people forget that people who've not been and actually seen it for themselves, um, they just listen to all the mainstream media about how um, you know about about the history of apartheid and everything in South Africa. They don't actually realise that um, there are different cultures that are being forced together and it doesn't necessarily um that it's not necessarily cohesive so there were um areas that i remember we we were running low on fuel and we we uh, pulled off the main road um to find a garage and we found ourselves in the middle of a township and uh you know my it was only me and my mother in the car i was 14 14 and a half um I've never seen I've never seen the color drain from my mum's face so quickly, and it's the first time I've ever known her wheel spin a car. <laughs> yes, uh, very wise because uh, remember Africa still has a lot of influence of witchcraft, and of course Marxist troublemakers have been over here sowing race hatred, and uh, they need lawlessness, respect for life and property, and respect for the rule of law is absolutely essential for any society any economy and lawlessness is a recipe for the destruction of any economy and South Africa was trying to counteract revolution and revolutionaries were trying to break up the very fabric of society and to create racial conflict and uh, so the first duty of government is to protect life and property which they plainly failed in but then one needs to understand that the first goal of a Marxist <laughs> is to uh, cause conflict because they need that chaos to create the conditions necessary that people will accept their globalist uh, Marxist agendas. And uh, this is this is what their goal is. It's to create fear and to create tension, corrupt and conquer, confuse, divide and conquer. Thank you, Peter. 
And uh, just before we go, and thank you, Maleficus, um, folks, this is going to go up before it goes live. It's an emergency broadcast. It is the only broadcast of today, so I'm not going to be doing another one on top of the emergency broadcast. This is your Monday show, and please do all that you can to support our brothers and sisters in South Africa. But Jeff Rents on his website, rents.com, has put up a video. Now, I'm going to see if it's going to play. It's only 37 seconds, so I'm going to see if it's going to play loud enough. So um, let's hope it does. And the headline is... Democratic communists use same old tricks and label their opponents anti-Semitic and fascists. Watch this 1950s clip. So here we go, folks. Have a listen to this. In 1943, the following directive was issued from party headquarters to all communists in the United States. It read, When certain obstructionists become too irritating, label them, after suitable build-ups, as fascist or Nazi or anti-Semitic, and use the prestige of anti-fascist and tolerance organizations to discredit them. In the public mind, constantly associate those who oppose us with those names which already have a bad smell. The association will, after enough repetition, become fact in the public mind. There you go, folks. So uh, before we go, Maleficus, any comments on that, please? Well, doesn't, doesn't that just show that the same... Uh, methods and methodology is being used you know uh, all the way back to you know from well all the way back when for as long as uh, my uh, his- historical studies go mm. so I, I would say my historical studies go from the Boer War up to the present day um, and it's the same methodology being used by the same culprits on a worldwide basis divide and conquer divide and conquer yes yeah. Um, thank you, Maleficus. And Peter, your comments, and can you please finish us off with uh, how people can find your work and contact you? Yes, certainly. I, I totally agree with that. And what a brilliant clip. Because as these recent devastating riots and looting sprees highlight, this is the consequence of decades of secular humanist situation ethics and indoctrination in state schools as a result of officially promoted sense of entitlement for certain groups and highly irresponsible news media, which has persistently described violent rights as protests and glamorizing of rights and terrorists, like the United Nations declared 18 July to be Nelson Mandela Day. So when you want to glamorize terrorists to bomb people and kill people and use terrorism to get to power, well, what do you think that teaches the new generation? And so this shows the inevitable consequence of the Marxist critical race theory, the propaganda which has incited a victim intel that justifies blatant theft and brazen looting and malicious damage to property. I mean, this is just absolutely inevitable result of all of this that they've been pushing. So, yes, if you want to uh, learn more what's going on in South Africa, uh, visit our mission website, www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org. I've got some pictures of the rights, and we keep adding more on. And uh, uh, you'll also find the Henry Morton Stanley School of Christian Journalism, the HMS School of Christian Journalism website's got a whole lot of updates on this. I've been posting on a Facebook page, my personal Peter Hammond and Frontline and also HMS site. You'll see a whole lot on, on what's going on. We, we're getting more pictures all the time um, as we get into the streets and from our friends and contacts. So you can contact me, peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za. Thank you for your prayers, for your support, for your solidarity. But bear in mind, whatever they're doing here in South Africa, this is a trial run for what's coming to a neighborhood near you too. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you so much, Malifkas, for joining me for this emergency broadcast today entitled The Real Story of the Worst Rights in South Africa that are happening as we speak. Malifkas will be back with me next Monday. Peter will be back with me next Thursday. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Until then, folks, bye for now.